Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. Uh, In this week's podcast, we want to talk a little bit more about Joseph Smith's presidential campaign. Uh, Several podcasts ago, uh, in one of the Martyrdom podcasts, we talked a little bit about that, but here we wanted to dive a little deeper and to go in a little more detail about some of his positions, and then maybe even some of the interactions that he had with other candidates. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the more unique aspects of Joseph Smith's life. I mean, many uh, Latter-day Saints don't don't think about Joseph in this regard. Uh, they probably all, many of them have heard that Joseph Smith uh, ran for president, but maybe they don't they don't really understand why he did. I mean, again, we did talk about it a little bit in the martyrdom. So if you want to go back to those podcasts and listen to them, um, you know, that they're they're still available for you. But really, I think, you know, everyone loves politics. So I figured we'd just, you know, spend some time on that. We, we thought, what's a better way to help people feel at ease and really take some time and think about the Savior than, than to talk about politics? Because that's when people are the closest to Jesus they've ever been. Absolutely. Uh, they have so much love in their heart. They're looking to help their neighbors, friends, relatives, perhaps even, uh, you know, uh, their 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 fellow men on the other side of the aisle. So one of the things I want to to do is to just set a little bit of the stage. So some of this will be will seem a little bit similar. But if you just recall that we, we talked about how in the late Nauvoo period, so in 1843, already there are many there are many forces that seem to be working against Joseph and the Latter-day Saints to the point where Joseph has, has has slowly started to feel as if they are more and more politically isolated. The election of 1844 is, is a pretty unique one in American history. And one of the reasons why it's so unique is that they are going to have a president that isn't going to really attempt to run a second time because his own party isn't going to nominate him to be president. So that, you know, rarely does that happen. I mean, it's it's very rare. Uh, in fact, it hasn't happened that a a president, a sitting president from their own party is in, in danger of not being re-nominated to run for president again. How does this happen? Well, um, this is the part you can probably go to sleep on. But uh, in in the election of 1840, the the Whig party finally won the presidency and they'd been trying for years. So the Whig party was, was kind of the smaller party. It was the party of business. It was the party of, uh, uh of banking. It was more uh, the party of the evangelical Christian. It was more localized in the, in the Northeast, you know, obviously the party for, you know, men's hair club. I mean, it was it, it, the, the Whig party. It gets its name from this opposition party, to uh, the British king in in England, 
And the Democratic Party was by far, it just, it had, it was more wide ranging, it was a more national party. Um, it was more the party of a small farmer, but of course in the South it was also the, the party of, of slaveholders and, and slaveholding. So both parties at this time uh, were at least uh, tacitly, if not directly, in favor of slavery. So that, that's going to become a bigger issue later in American history. At any rate, the, the Democrats had really come to dominate American electoral politics because of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson had just, he was this populist president that just, he ran roughshod over the, uh, the remaining branches of the American uh, uh, government. Um, for instance, he blamed everything in the world on the National Bank. You know, he was, you know, uh, oh, you weren't able to get your loan? Well, that's because these rich fat cat people at the National Bank, you know, they're controlling your interest rates. Oh, oh, unable to 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 move up and then in the world the way you think the American dream. Well, it's because of the National Bank. You know, problems at home with your wife. Well, it's National Bank. I mean, he essentially claimed it was the great evil of of everything. And a lot of people supported him because, you know, then as now, when there's a lot of money concentrated and someone tries to tell you. The fact that that money is concentrated is the reason why you aren't as successful as you want to be. Well, that's actually a fairly easy thing to believe, right? Because you're looking for an explanation. At any rate, Jackson will, he will uh, economically destabilize the entire country by forcing the destruction of the American National Bank. There used to be a Bank of the United States, the same way there's a Bank of England. Um, and and they set interest rates and all of the tax dollars of, of the U.S. government were deposited in that Bank of, uh, of the United States, but it was seen as too much a consolidation of power. So Jackson's own party knows if we get rid of the National Bank, we're going to be back to like, the inflation that happened during the American Revolution, where we had to publish, you know, bread prices three times a day because they changed that much. So you better buy it in the morning because in nighttime it's going to be three times what it costs. I mean, the inflation's ridiculous uh, in in the early American economy. So his own party actually votes to re-up the National Bank's charter. Well, Andrew Jackson vetoes it. His own party, because they dominate the, the legislature, they override his veto. That's, that's how certain they are. This is a problem. So Andrew Jackson does what all um, you know, uh, dictators do. I mean, he is elected. He's not a dictator. But he just decides he'll take matters into his own hands. And he just, by executive order, removes all of the federal monies from the Bank of the United States. So you have all of the money, all of the tax dollars that have been flowing into this bank are suddenly removed out of it. And it causes the bank to become un- unstable and it collapses. Now, that, that, that was one of the things he did. The other thing Andrew Jackson did was he was the president who in, passed and then enforced the Indian Removal Act. This is one of the great tragedies of American history. Uh, the Congress essentially, they passed a law called the Indian Removal Act 1830 that, re- that forced the removal of all Indian tribes east of the Mississippi River to the west of the Mississippi River. If you ever wonder why um, uh, 
you know, Oklahoma is, 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 you know, native America. I know Richard, you're getting your PhD there in Oklahoma state. Um, the, the reason why the, the so-called five civilized tribes, which is in and of itself a denigrating moniker, um, are, are there is be, not because they're native to Oklahoma, uh, but because they were living in places like Georgia and South Carolina and Mississippi and Florida primarily. And they were forcibly removed by the United States to, um, to what was then Indian territory, which will later become the state of Oklahoma and, and, and the other parts of, of the West as well. Well, the Supreme Court, you know, it, look, when you study American history, most of the time, you, you know, as you study the, the decisions and thoughts that people have, you have to have a lot of grace for people in the past because they don't have the same education that you do. They don't have, if they're a member of the church, they haven't received the same revelations that you have received. They don't have the same uh, 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 understanding culturally. I mean, nothing that we believe is is similar to what they believe in most cases. So, so it, there, there's a lot of times that you read something from the past and you kind of slap your head and like, oh boy, please don't be in favor of slavery. You know, which Andrew Jackson's way in favor of slavery is like his, this is the main part of his presidency is slavery. He, uh, he, you know, he, he's a slave plantation owner himself. And at any rate, the Supreme court of the United States takes up a challenge from the Cherokee because they had their lands given to them by a treaty from the United States Senate. This is not like, oh, hey, these are the lands we have left. There was an actual treaty signed between the Cherokee Nation and the United States government ratified by the Senate as a treaty. So it's as legal as it could possibly be. And the Indian Removal Act was essentially forcibly removing them from these lands that they'd signed a treaty on. Well, so the Cherokee challenged this. In one of the great, you know, positive bright spots, if you're a 21st century American looking back on the, the 19th century past, the Supreme Court sided with the Cherokee and said, yeah, you can't, you can't just abrogate this treaty just because you feel like it. And that's not how that works. And Andrew Jackson, at least reputed to have responded, well, Justice Marshall has his ruling. Now let's see him try to enforce it and proceeded to allow the Georgia military to begin removing Indians. And if you've ever heard of the Trail of Tears, that's that's where that comes from. Uh, that that the horrific uh, exposure of of men, women, and children in that thousands mile long march in which in which hundreds of people die. Um, that is a result of this Indian Removal Act. So there's reasons why Andrew Jackson's not no not my favorite president. I don't know how he got his giant forehead on the twenty dollar bill, given how anti monetary policy he was, but. Um, why does that matter? Well, because that kind of sets a tone in American history of the kind of power of the presidency. And a lot of what's going to happen next matters because Joseph's Joseph begins thinking of the American presidency in ways that Americans traditionally hadn't, in part because Andrew Jackson had wielded so much executive power as president. Now, on the other side of the ledger, it caused a great deal of opposition to executive power, especially among the Whig Party, which claimed that you know all power should be held in the Congress, not in the presidency, things like that. Um, you, you can't simply use your, your traditional understanding of Democrats and Republicans today. 
I'll occasionally have students say things like, uh, you know, so like, so Whigs, were they like Republicans? No, they were like Whigs. And look, they believe different things. So you can't just, I know we desperately want to make whatever we know now equal something in the past, but almost always when we do that, it's erroneous and it doesn't work. So, um, you know, we'll talk more about what they believe kind of going forward. At any rate, in the aftermath of Andrew Jackson as president, Martin Van Buren becomes president, which most Latter-day Saints have some kind of inkling that they know him and they don't like him. And it's not just because he's Dutch, because that would be a little bit of an insult to me. It's because Martin Van Buren is the president that Joseph will go meet with in Washington, D.C. and and ask, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, the Latter-day Saints have had thousands of acres of property. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of property stolen from them at the point of a bayonet, hundreds of people assaulted, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of depredations and murders that have taken place. And no one is even charged for what happens in Missouri, let alone their lands being given back to them. This is just, this is a wholesale slaughter and, 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 and ethnic cleansing of Latter-day Saints from, from Missouri. They are driven out and told they'll be killed if they stay. There's an extermination order out from the state of Missouri. Their lands and property are all taken. And no one, you know, no one has any accountability for this at all. And so for the Latter-day Saints, they, they keep petitioning and asking. And they're going to petition Congress. And they, they, of course, petition the courts. And they petition the courts in Missouri. And, you know, those don't listen very much. But... Um, it's this years-long odyssey to try to get some kind of justice for what happened in Missouri. We'll actually talk in a, in a future podcast at some point when I when I work up the nerve. We'll talk about the Mormon War in Missouri and the horrific depredations that took place, and and you know just how just how horrific this was for Latter Day Saints living there. But at any point, this this is why Joseph meets with Martin Van Buren. Well, Van Buren, uh, you know, as uh, you know, depending on which account you take, says something to the effect, you know, your cause is just. I can do nothing for you. I'll lose the state of Missouri as a vote. When when Van Buren uh, uh, goes for his reelection, um. He's challenged by the Whig Party, and 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 he's there in the middle of a of an economic depression, and the Whig Party decide they're going to take a play out of the Democratic playbook. The reason why Andrew Jackson had come to dominate American politics and and reshape the entire Democratic Party, I mean, uh, was he was this war hero. Everyone loved Andrew Jackson because of because of the War of eighteen twelve. He was the one who won the Battle of New Orleans. He he was you know the the old Hickory. He was a you know, a terrible politician as far as politicians go. When he was first elected, he went to Congress uh, as a congressman before he became president. He went to Congress as a congressman, was there for like a week, decided he really hated how Congress worked, and then went back home to Tennessee, which is uh, probably par for the course, right? And so the, the Whigs decide, you know, with the 1840 election, they're going to take a play out of the Democrats' playbook. And so they grab a war hero to run. Not, no, no more of these statesmen, you know, these John Quincy Adams and these highfalutin educated banker lawyer types. Let's go find ourselves a war hero. And they do. They go get, they go get William Henry Harrison, who is the war hero 
another war hero of, of, of the War of 1812, but famous for winning the Battle of Tippecanoe against Tecumseh, the great uh, Indian uh, chief of, the, of this Indian Confederacy during the time period. And, and he ran on probably, you know, it's probably one of the things you might even remember from your, 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 your junior high or perhaps high school years, the party platform. Do you remember the party platform at all that he ran on? When, I when I say, yeah, well, Richard failed most of grade school, but <laughs> this is true. yeah, What's the, I, I said the battle of Tippecanoe. Yeah, that's Tippecanoe the, that, and something too. Yeah. Or? Yeah. Tippecanoe and some, a pair of Nikes too. I yeah. That, said, yeah. yeah. No, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Ah. Yeah. That's the, yeah. So, so Richard's going to be going back to remedial, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 podcasting and, uh, which is, which this already well, yeah, is. I'm, 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 I'm as down low as I could possibly get in terms of podcasting. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're 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 probably going to get knocked off of Apple at this point. But um, once they hear that, once the, once they're probably once they hear that I didn't know that Tippecanoe and Tyler yeah, too. They're monitoring. Yeah, maybe maybe throwing some good things to say about 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 uh, Cook. I mean, and that, he's great. Yeah, that would probably help. Yeah. Anyway. Um, why does that matter? You're thinking, why has he spent so much time on this? Well, because this is, you know, uh, you know, just to set the stage a little bit. It's because in order to win, the, the Whigs don't have as many politicians, right? I mean, they don't have as many members of their party. They're not as widespread nationally. It's hard for them to win. So they pick a war hero, so they hope they get a bunch of crossover votes. But knowing that that's not going to be enough to get them over the line, they do something that has a really big import to our topic of discussion. And that is they pick a Democrat to run as the vice president. And that's who John Tyler is. John Tyler is a Virginia Democrat. Now, he was kind of the old wing of the Democrats before Andrew Jackson came to power. And so he was he represented the traditional Democrats rather than a Jacksonian Democrat. So they'd butted heads a whole bunch, and eventually John Tyler had essentially said, that's it, I'm leaving the party, I'm going to become a Whig. So Harrison runs, and, and he wins the election. It's a very close election, but Harrison wins, and Tyler's his vice president. And then William Henry Harrison does what all good Whig presidents do, dies in office. Uh, he, he almost immediately dies in office. In fact, he, he it's believed that during his three and a half hour inauguration address in the rain, that he, his body became, uh, you know, chilled and, and tired and he contracted pneumonia and, and he died a hundred days into office. So John Tyler suddenly becomes president. This is devastating for the Whig party. And this, again, you're like, I don't understand any of this. I know, but that's why we're doing this. Just, you can replay it again. Um, you know, maybe go find someone better to talk to you about it. But um, John Tyler might have been a wig on paper, but he wasn't a wig. He'd never been a wig. He was a lifelong Democrat. He believed in things the Democrats believed in. He had just gotten in a fight with the party leadership and said, well, fine, forget you. I'll become a wig but he didn't believe anything that Whigs believed. So the Whigs went from being overjoyed that they finally had a Whig Congress because they had won back the Congress. They finally had a Whig president. We are going to pass a national bank. We're going to pass a new tariff. We're going to pass all these business-friendly things. And then their president dies. The, the, the Whigs in Congress hope 
that they that Tyler will now pass their legislative agenda, and in fact, he will not. He begins vetoing all of their legislative agenda. Uh, I mean, you can probably put this in, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican today, imagine if, if you know, whatever party you are, in the upcoming, you know, you know, next presidential election, in order for the party to win, they decide, you know what, the best way is to grab this moderate Democrat or this moderate Republican and add them to the ticket to get some crossover votes. And then that, that actual presidential candidate dies. And then that, that now president, vice president begins vetoing all of your own party's legislation. So needless to say, Democrats, they already hated John Tyler because they blamed him for the reason why the Whigs won the presidency. The only reason William Henry Harrison won is because you're popular and you jumped ship and pretended to be his vice president. So they hate him. Whigs hate John Tyler because he exists, because he was a, because he's supposedly the Whig president of the United States, but he's siding with the actual Democrats in Congress on everything. So John Tyler becomes probably the most hated president in American history by, as far as politically speaking. I mean, you know, individually, I mean, I'm sure people like to go have a beer with him. Uh, maybe, well, during this time period, even Latter-day Saints. But uh, the, 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 the reality is, he has no support from his own party who see him as this turncoat traitor and he, and he's not able to win them back by vetoing Whig legislation because as far as they're concerned, we wouldn't even have to deal with a Whig Congress if you hadn't become a traitor, right? The Whigs hate John Tyler because they finally got the presidency and he is undermining every single thing they do. What does that mean? It means it leads to an 1844 election in which John Taylor, John Tyler can't even get nominated by the Whig party that elected him. And when he puts some feelers out to perhaps going back to the democratic party, they're like, no, thanks. There are, you know, there are a substantial number of people that say, oh yeah, they would back another Tyler presidency, but it's more around like 20%. And while that's a substantial number, that isn't going to win anyone the presidency. And so as you approach the 1844 election, what you have is the most curious of open presidential elections that you've really ever had. The sitting president could run for re-election, but isn't because his own party hates him. The opposition party also hates him and wants to put up their own party. And so so you, you essentially have this open presidential election. In that world, as Joseph Smith begins contemplating the candidates, he decides that he is going to make, uh, he's going to make, uh, uh, he's going he's to reach out to them and find out who is actually going to help them. Joseph had started in life being much more trusting that the American political system would eventually come out right. Joseph really seems to have believed that at some point in Missouri, somebody would be willing to say, hey, 
you can't just take their home and put a gun to their head and say, it's my house now. We have laws in this country. You have to actually buy land. You can't threaten to kill somebody just to take it. And Joseph really seemed to believe early on in the 1830s that at some point, a politician would have the courage to do what's right. But as time goes on, especially after Congress rejects their petition, after uh, President Van Buren um, you know, says, well, I'm not going to do anything to help you, it, it seems like there's a growing level of frustration. And that frustration is, it, it manifests itself in Joseph becoming increasingly politically active on a national scale. Latter-day Saints were always people who voted locally, and of course they vote in national elections. But you don't find Joseph Smith making a bunch of commentary on who he supports for president in 1834. That's not there. Where do you start to see that? Well, after the catastrophe in Missouri, national politics start to take a much, they start to become much more important to Joseph Smith because the only way they're going to get their lands back in Missouri is, is through these, through, they think, through the presidency or through the Congress. So Joseph will make a couple of, of choices. The first is that even though most Democrats, sorry, most Mormons were Democrats, I apologize to all of the, no, I'm not saying most Democrats are Mormons. Most Mormons at the time were Democrats, and and pretty universally so. That actually leads to some of the violence in Missouri because Whigs in Missouri played an anti-Mormon card because they didn't want Mormons to vote because then they would they'd vote they'd vote in uh, for Democrats. That Democratic Party allegiance had not really helped the Mormons at all. I mean, they'd been voting in blocks for Democrats or Democratic presidents over and over and over again. And not only did it not help them, Martin Van Buren did, couldn't care less to help them. Wilburn Boggs, the governor of Missouri, was a Democrat. Now, the fact that they were all Democrats did help when they moved to Illinois because the Illinois Democrats who controlled the state house were surprisingly very willing to accommodate the Latter-day Saints who moved to Illinois. And they were the ones who gave the very broad Nauvoo charter to the Latter-day Saints and gave them all kinds of power and authority and the ability to protect themselves. Because in their eyes, they saw, hey, here come thousands of very loyal Democrat votes. Right? That, that, that's, again, hard to believe a world where politicians would make a decision solely on the basis of getting votes but you have to go back to, with me to the 19th century when politicians regularly did things only on the basis of, of getting more votes. So what is it that the Democratic Party believes that aligns with what Mormons are believing that make it so that they're voting in such blocks for, for the Democrats? I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but um, in general, um, one, of the, one of the major things that I think causes more uh, more Latter-day Saints to be Democrats rather than uh, Whigs is the the Whig party has a, a fairly strong evangelical Christian element to it. And as you might imagine, they aren't fans of Mormons. Uh, so I think that that's, there's a little bit of that. 
And on top of that, I mean, so the Democratic Party was always more friendly towards Catholicism than um, than the than the the Whig Party was. The Whig Party was primarily located up in the in the American Northeast. So, I mean, the places of like New England and and today you think of those places not as hotbeds of religion, but you're you're thinking about the world the way it is now as opposed to the way it was then. In the United States in the 1830s during the Second Great Awakening, Vermont is the most religious most evangelical Christian place in the entire country. Today, it has the highest percentage of atheists. So they all moved out. They, well, yeah, they moved out. Uh, um, they clearly didn't move in because there's the same number of nobody living in Vermont uh, now as was then. But um, we tend to think of the South as being incredibly religious. But that's the result of much later influences in the South. Most uh, Americans are uh, Episcopalians. They're 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 Anglican. They're they're Church of England. They actually resist most of the religious impulses of the Second Great Awakening because uh, they are worried that the uh, uh, they're worried that the teaching of, of slaves religion will cause them to be, to rebel things like that so they're very hesitant with uh, this kind of arminian preaching in the south but at any rate um the, they're also the whigs are also generally anti-immigrationists they actually want to extend the time period in which people uh can be in the country before they become citizens they want to make it harder for those people to be able to vote and that kind of nativist sentiment is also, you know, going to be increasingly unhelpful to Latter-day Saints who are starting to get converts from overseas, right? So if part of what you have as a religion is we're preaching to people in England and then we want them to gather because this is the time period of gathering. When, when you were converted in England, the expectation was as soon as you could financially afford it, you were going to pick up and move to Kirtland or Far West or, or to Nauvoo. So I think those are the two of the main ones. And in America generally, the, the Democratic Party, especially in the North, really appealed to the relatively poor <clears throat> middling white farmer. Um, and the policies of, you know, spending a bunch of money on, 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 national infrastructure and and having higher taxes like tariffs is what the Whigs supported. The Whigs supported having national taxes in order to create internal improvements in the country. But if I'm a farmer living in Western Ohio, yeah, I'm not going to be using that road you're building through the Cumberland Gap. And why in the world do I want to pay more money for the plow that I'm importing from England, just so you can say that you have that money. Now the Whigs, of course, would say, "Well, we're we're trying to spur American manufacturing. We're by having these tariffs, we can we can create American manufacturing, and now now we'll we'll, we'll be able to make it so people can make plows in America, and and eventually that'll make America more independent, and eventually there will be an American plow that's as cheap as a British plow." But if you're the farmer living in Western Ohio, your response is. Well, I need my plow now, and I need it to not be expensive now. And so, in general, 
producers, farmers, saw tariffs as negatives because they made the cost of the things they had to buy more expensive in order to farm. And it also meant retaliatory tariffs would be put in place against American goods. And if you're someone who's exporting tobacco from Virginia, well, I don't want France to have a tax on my tobacco because then it's harder for me to sell my tobacco. So that's, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why. And someone who's a political and economic historian listening right now would be like, well, let me tell you about, yeah, there's, a, there's way more, okay. But in general, most Latter-day Saints are drawn from the ranks of people that would be naturally gravitate towards the Democratic Party anyway. Most Americans are Democrats. I mean, look, in the earliest days of Joe Smith's life, there were the, the two political parties were the Jeffersonian Republicans and then the Federalist Party. The Federalist Party collapses, and for a while there's only the there's only the Republican Party. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I I, I didn't think the Republican the early Republican Party, the Jeffersonian Republicans. It eventually kind of breaks down, you know. So there's only one party rule for for James Monroe's presidency uh, during the 1820s, and then it begins to break down over what were called National Republicans and Democratic Republicans. And Jackson and his wing are these Democratic Republicans, and when they come to power, they essentially they drop the term Republican and they just become Democrats. Their opponents, um trying to paint Andrew Jackson as the kind of dictator that he was by saying he was acting like a king, like he was King Andrew the first, they uh, started calling themselves, instead of national Republicans, they started calling themselves Whigs because the Whig was the opposition party to the king in England. So, Andrew Jackson's acting like a king, so we're going to have a political party that opposes him like he's a king. That that's where that that's where that that those ideologies come from. But for Latter-day Saints individually, the Whigs were promoting economic interests that didn't help poor farmers like themselves. They were supporting religious interests like evangelical Christianity, which clearly doesn't help Latter-day Saints like themselves. And they were uh, opposing um making it easier for immigrants to become naturalized American citizens, which is going to increasingly become a problem for Latter-day Saints because these people are coming by the thousands in the Nauvoo period. So it's a natural movement for them to, to not only are most Americans Jacksonian Democrats, most Americans are because Jackson was so wildly popular, but there's not any draw for them to leave and go to this other party. They're not rich. They aren't bankers. They aren't, you know, when they try their hand at banking, it doesn't work very well. I mean, they, th- that's not what they do. So that, that's part of the reason why. Is anyone awake still? If you are, you know, you know, you know, uh, text once for yes and twice for no. But, uh, um, well, if this doesn't do it. When we start reading letters from John C. Calhoun, that'll bring them back. Yeah. Well, John C. Calhoun, well, uh, do I have to read it like John C. Calhoun? That'd be great if you did. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to offend any of our listeners in South Carolina who are already going to be upset that we're quoting from John C. Calhoun, let alone using a fake South Carolina accent. My wife was born in North Carolina, so I should probably go find her and have her read some of the letters. I think you should. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she could do it. And uh, I have her. I have seen like an old home video of her uh, talking about uh, her, her, her Barbies and her dollies in a very, it's, 
Very Southern. It's very Southern. Yeah, very Southern. Uh, it's something I'm sure she tries to hide from the world today. Anyway, um, the throughout 1843, as we're rapidly approaching this 1844 election that is really just up in the air, the Democrats are in shambles. I mean... Jackson might have brought the whole party together and ruled with an iron fist, but Martin Van Buren was no Andrew Jackson. And his presidency was plagued with this huge economic crisis. And there was so much infighting in the Democratic Party that you weren't really sure who was going to be president. A lot of people were putting forward Martin Van Buren. He still had an, he, he, he served one term and then got voted out. But maybe they would vote him back in. You know, he was a known quantity. He was from that Jacksonian wing. But there were lots of people vying for that Democratic Party nomination. Now, they didn't have a primary system the way we have it today. It's not like every state votes and then we take the No. The way it worked back then is you would essentially get the party delegates from from the various states together in, in a convention, kind of like we do now. And they would hash it all out at the convention. Rather than having these pledged delegates, oh, we voted in our primary and we're sending eight delegates for Bernie Sanders and we're sending 10 for that. That didn't happen. And so these people get together and they'd get drunk and they'd get in fistfights and they'd, they would vote and vote and vote and vote until they could eventually come up with a candidate. Some of the other candidates who were standing for election were more firebrand, uh, hardcore pro-slavery people. I mean, Martin Van Buren was very friendly to slavery. He was from the north, but you know he he tried to to return the the slaves from the Amistad ship. If you've ever seen the movie Amistad, these slaves that uh, take over a slave ship that's illegally transporting them, and they sail themselves into a Connecticut harbor, and there's this huge outcry uh, both from the south and from Cuba that those slaves should be returned back to Cuba. And Martin Van Buren totally supports that. Totally supports the the re-enslaving of these men, even though they were illegally being trafficked as slaves. Um, uh, because the international slave trade is, is illegal as far as the United States is concerned. Well, um, so Van Buren is, is, is he's pro-slavery, but he's still a northerner. Where you have John C. Calhoun, who is this, Again, former vice president. He's a former vice president of Andrew Jackson. So, so Martin Van Buren was his vice president, as was uh, um, uh, John C. Calhoun. But Calhoun was a militant pro-slavery guy. He he is the one who uh, actually challenged Andrew Jackson while he was vice president by having South Carolina. Uh, um, nullify some of the federal laws. If you remember back to our discussion about the Civil War prophecy. That was John C. Calhoun, who is supporting this nullification of federal law when he doesn't see that it supports him. Calhoun wants to see slavery extended all over the country. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't want any opposition to slavery at all. So he's running as this deep south, southern firebrand Democrat. Richard Mentor Johnson is also running uh, as uh, the vice uh, as the president for president, he was vice president to Martin Van Buren. So he's from Kentucky. He's so he's also a pro-slavery guy, but he uh, he had been Martin Van Buren's vice president and now was standing to run for president as well in 1844. Um, I, I don't know if you know uh, Richard 
Richard Johnson also had a, a pretty catchy campaign slogan. He did. He did. Um, you just know that one off the top of your I, head. Off the top of my head, I think it goes something like Rumsey Dumsey, Rumsey Dumsey, Colonel Johnson killed Tecumseh. It's right off the top of my head. I know um, failed uh, political campaign <laughs> slogans better than right, successful right. ones. So, so I can only ask you ones where they don't succeed, and then you'll know those. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so if I asked you what, what Geraldine Ferraros was, you've got that. Yeah, but, <laughs> but but you don't know Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. But yeah, I mean, it, and he's right. It, it, Colonel Johnson, uh, you know, Richard Johnson, Vice President Richard Johnson, his claim to fame was that at the Battle of the Thames in 1813 in in Canada, in the War of 1812, during one of the invasions of Canada, um, which was on the British side, if you're wondering why we're invading Canada, um, is... Uh, he claims that at that battle, the great Indian chief, you know, William Henry Harrison had run, had won the presidency on the basis that he had won a great victory against Tecumseh. Well, so Colonel Johnson, you know, Richard Johnson took that page out of the playbook. Well, you might've beaten him in a battle, but I'm literally the one who actually shot and killed Tecumseh. Now there is very little to no evidence that this is actually the case uh, outside of PR. And again, I know it's going to. It's impossible to believe. You are going to have to go with me to a place where a politician might claim to have done something in order to gain national favor that there's very little evidence they actually did. But in the past, politicians would do that. Wow! It, wow! It would. I mean, the things we learn. I'm so grateful for where we are today. Anyway, uh, the the reality is, um, you know, Johnson's, you know. His little catchy slogan, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, Rumsey Dumsey, Rumsey Dumsey, Colonel Johnson killed Tecumseh, did not get him elected president, but that, that'll factor in. Um, so, so you have these various, oh, and you also have Lewis Cass. Now, Lewis Cass is, uh, he's, a, he's a Michigander, um, and I don't know whether he'd have been for Michigan State or Michigan, um, but um, he was the governor of Michigan Territory. And and then is going to become um, a the Secretary of War for Andrew Jackson. So Andrew Jackson, you know, he he removes all the Indians from uh, the the American Southeast. The person implementing that policy, the person using the military to do that, is Lewis Cass. So he has a, a fairly sordid background in that in that regard as well, as far as twenty first century Americans are concerned. How is that viewed nationally? By the way, I was I was interested by that because so he's running uh, based on what he did there. My guess is that for many Americans, the removal of the Native Americans was was popular. Yeah, as what is going to come as a gigantic shock to anyone who's ever studied the American past at all. Uh, hatred of Native Americans was very normalized, and and. There are certainly people that are defending Native Americans. There are. There are people who are saying, we need to honor their treaties. I mean, again, you have the Supreme Court rule on their side. But they are very much the minority. Most Americans, at best, will have this kind of benevolent, paternalist racism directed towards Native Americans where they say, well, you know... If they stay in Florida, I mean, eventually they're just going to be so drowned out by the whites who live there that 
that they'll lose their whole culture and language anyway. So we, we, should, we it's actually good for us to move them somewhere else where they can maintain their culture. You know, I mean, it just so happens to be also away from where the gold was found in Georgia. But yeah, I mean, um, so most Americans have decidedly negative views towards Native Americans, and 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 that it's that's not an American ideal it's it's exactly the way the europeans treated native americans in period and so uh the americans uh, you know carrying on from the english they they see the native americans as an impediment i mean the price for native american peace with whites will always be their willingness to give up land if they're willing to sell land then they're going to have peaceful relations the moment they say yeah we're not selling this anymore especially since you found a bunch of gold on it, which is what happens in Georgia. Um, well, the moment that they say that, there's going to be problems in Native American white relations. So, yeah, Lewis Cass isn't just heralded for, for carrying out the Indian Removal Act. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a national statesman. He's been a minister to France. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a well-accomplished person. So he's also running on the Democratic side. So I listed off a bunch of Democratic candidates. Martin Van Buren, Lewis Cass, Richard Mentor Johnson, and um, uh, uh, John C. Calhoun. On the Whig side of the ledger, it's a much easier list. And by that, I mean it's not a list. Uh, Henry Clay is the great statesman. Henry Clay, you might even have known him. Maybe you knew him from your... your since you knew Rumsey Dumsey, I'm guessing you knew Henry Clay. Hooray, hooray, the country's rising for Henry Clay and Freeling Heisen. I don't know if I pronounced his last name correctly. That's the way. When, well, if when, you're going to say the country's rising, when I was a when I was a child and my mother would sing lullabies, she would sing. She would sing. sing she would sing this, to you. She would say, "Hey, hey the country's rising for Freelandheisen. Freelandheisen. Yeah. yeah. Again, in a spoiler alert, Henry Clay doesn't become president, but um, Henry Clay had kind of been seen as this, you know, the statesman waiting in the wings. He's the great compromiser. He is. He's the one who pushed the Missouri Compromise, that Compromise of 1820, through the Congress. And he, the Whigs are unified in support behind him in a way that is, it's actually you know, hard to find in, in even in any modern presidential elections where it's just everyone is saying, this is the person that's going to be our candidate. And so Joseph knows who is going to be the 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 candidate from the Whig side. He's not entirely sure who the candidate from the Democratic side is because they haven't gone to the presidential, uh, uh, the primary or the, sorry, the, the uh, they haven't had the convention and fought it out yet. But he, he does know who these people are. And so he is going to try to ascertain what it is they believe. Even leading up to this though, in 1843, Joseph has, he's made a pretty fateful decision. And that is that at least on the national scale, while he's still going to support local democratic candidates in, in Illinois, you know, as they always have, he is going to publicly support Henry Clay, the Whig for president. And, and, and part of the reason why I think is that in mid 1843, most people think that it's either going to be Martin Van Buren as the presidential candidate, who Joseph is well aware will do nothing to help them, 
or the next most likely person is actually Richard Mentor Johnson of Rumsey Dumsey Tecumseh fame, who was the vice president who was also unwilling to help them. So I think Joseph kind of gets pushed towards the support of Henry Clay. And plus, Henry Clay has been highly critical of the Jacksonian Democrats on the basis of their, you know, kind of wielding dictatorial power. The fact that they are willing to to, to do things without the Congress doing it is, is a big part of, of the criticism. And so I think Joseph almost sees Henry Clay as a kind of law and order candidate type of person, right? That, that if there's anyone who's going to follow the laws, it's the great jurist and statesman and lawyer, Henry Clay. He, if anyone's going to say, you can't have your property taken away from you because someone has a gun, it's going to be Henry Clay. And he'll even give an interview to this effect in, in the second half of 1843, Joseph will be interviewed and in it, he's asked directly about his uh, political plans for the upcoming election. And Joseph says, you know, I'm, I'm tending to clay. I'm made of clay. I feel like clay. I mean, he's, you know, you know I, I don't know if he actually said that because some reporter writing down what they claim he said, but the, the reason why he does it is because he's so disenchanted with what the National Democratic Party has done to him, and and in fact, um, is is going to say, um, in in that interview, he he's going to say, I have sworn by the eternal gods that I will never vote for a Democrat again, and I intend to swear my children, putting their hand under the thigh as Abraham swore Isaac, that they will never vote a Democratic ticket in all their generations. It is the meanest, lowest party in all creation. It is the lowest, most tyrannical beings in the world. They opposed me in Missouri and were going to shoot me for treason, and I had never committed any treason whatever. Huh. So so I'm assuming that everyone's rewinding this so that they can misappropriate this quote in their next, you know, elders quorum. Um, but it gives a sense of where Joseph was at, the frustration over to the boiling point that that you you have Democrats who are in control of the state house and the government in Missouri that lead the extermination of Mormons. You have Democrats in control of the presidency and the Congress that refuse to intervene and the presidency who refuse to intervene. The Democrats have rewarded Latter-day Saint loyalty with absolutely nothing but platitudes and oh yeah we're really sorry that happened to you yeah well sorry doesn't do anything about the people that were murdered right i mean and and so you can see joseph you know expressing some venting frustration there but because he's so frustrated the very fact that he's so frustrated means that when he he's not just going to simply take you know he thinks clay will be on their side but he's not going to just simply take it for granted. He is going to write to each of these candidates. He's going to write to them and ask them specifically what it is they are going to do if they are elected president. He is going to, he's going to write to them and say, you know, what, what is your, what is your cause? So 
again, he doesn't know exactly who the candidates are going to be. And, you know, in another spoiler alert for those of you who aren't up on your rumsy dumpsies, um, it's actually none of those Democratic candidates actually become president. Lewis Cass has a lead in the in the the voting. They go nine ballots in when it's obvious they can't resolve it between Martin Van Buren and Lewis Cass. And so they use Polk, James K. Polk from Tennessee, as this kind of dark horse compromise candidate between the the Deep South Democrats and the Northern Democrats. Joseph never even writes to, to Polk because, you know, he didn't know that Polk was going to even be a consideration. And actually, Henry Clay loves how unknown James Polk is. In fact, part one of his little campaign slogans during the campaign is going to be something to the effect of James Polk, who's he, essentially. You know, that's a, you know, no name recognition there. At, at any rate, Joseph's going to write to all of them, hoping to to find out what 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 they're going to do if they're elected to help the Latter-day Saints. Um, here, here's an example of, of one of those letters. This is the letter he writes to John C. Calhoun. Dear Sir, we understand that you are a candidate for the presidency at the ensuing election. As the Latter-day Saints, sometimes called Mormons, who now constitute a numerous class in the school politic of this vast republic, have been robbed of an immense amount of property and endured nameless sufferings by the state of Missouri and from her borders have been driven by force of arms contrary to our national covenants. And as in vain, we have sought redress by all constitutional, legal, and honorable means in her courts, her executive councils, and her legislative halls. And as we have petitioned Congress to take cognizance of our sufferings without effect, we have judged it wisdom to address you this communication and solicit an immediate, specific, and candid reply to what will your rule of action be relative to us as a people should fortune favor your ascension to the chief magistracy, Most respectfully, sir, your friend and the friend of peace and good order and constitutional rights, Joseph Smith, on in behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So they send an almost identical letter to all of the presidential candidates asking, like they said there, specifically, what are you going to do to help us? These candidates are going to respond one by one. And let me start with, with Calhoun's response so you can get you can get an idea. Now, first of all, that, that actually demonstrates to you how big a deal Mormonism so-called is in the 1840s. Joseph Smith writes John C. Calhoun a letter, and John C. Calhoun, based on the date of the letter he sends back, must have immediately written a letter back. I mean... Uh, now mainly I think what Calhoun's trying to do is to cover himself. Everyone hates Mormons, right? So, so some people like tariffs, some people don't like tariffs, some people like national banks, some people don't like national banks, some people like this, some people like that, and everyone hates Mormons. And so one of the, one of the things that's coming out of this is these presidential candidates realize that they are now, there's a chance that someone might try to tie them to the Mormon car, so to speak, right? That that if someone can claim that they're a Mormon candidate, this is actually already going on in Illinois. 
The very fact that the Mormons vote in blocks for Democrats and therefore voted in blocks for Thomas Ford, the Democratic governor of Illinois, led to the critics of Thomas Ford calling him the Mormon governor of Illinois. Now, as you might be aware, Thomas Ford was not a Mormon, and it will eventually become among the most hated of 19th century politicians for his complicit uh, at, at, at worst and an apathetic reaction at best to what leads to Joseph's murder. But his critics are using Mormonism as a millstone to hang around his neck because Mormons are hated. You either hate them politically because they're in the different political party. You hate them because they're corrupting Christianity if you happen to be a very strong Christian. You hate them because of, of the, 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 just the stories you hear about their aberrant and deviant ways. I mean, they, they are weird. They are different. If they're local to where you are, they're upsetting the apple cart of the way everything is. And so they're hated. So I think a lot of these candidates actually feel the need to respond because what if someone takes my lack of response as a support of Joseph Smith. And so we'll see what John C. Calhoun had to say. December 2nd, 1843. Sir, it doesn't say dear sir. It doesn't say, you know, you know, General Smith, your most humble and obedient servant. I mean, John C. Calhoun is uh, surprisingly for someone who was so overwhelmingly in favor of keeping other human beings in bondage, rather terse in his response does the the general latter-day saint opposition to slavery affect this here is even that not something that's maybe even i mean yeah i mean so john c calhoun is 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 not going to probably be as aware of that although if he's aware of of look he certainly knows his democratic colleagues in the senate from missouri and whenever they are justifying their actions as the Mormons, one of the things they're going to say is, well, these Mormons were opposed to slavery. They were messing with our slaves. They were trying to convert our slaves. They were trying to bring free people of color to the state of Missouri that would incite our slaves to bloodshed is what the Jackson County mob says. So, I mean, I think that that's tinged with it. I mean, Joseph Smith's a northerner. Nearly all of his followers are northerners. And when they were in Missouri, they were at least accused of trying to convert slaves, cause a slave uprising, and also an Indian uprising, which is also what they're accused of, is, is trying to you know grab some of those Indians from the other side of the Mississippi where Andrew Jackson has thrown them and bring them back in to devastate the United States. I mean, it's, it's all just you know, balderdash, essentially, but uh, it, it, it's very effective. It's an effective way of, of criticizing someone. So John C. Calhoun, not very <clears throat> polite in his response. Sir. You asked me what would be my rule of action relative to the Mormons or Latter-day Saints should I be elected president, to which I answer that if I should be elected, I would strive to administer the government according to the Constitution and laws of the Union, and that, as they make no distinction between citizens of different religion, creeds, I should make none either. As far as it depends on the executive department, all should have the full benefit of both, and none should be exempt from their operation. But as you refer to the case of Missouri, candor compels me to repeat what I said to you at Washington. It's one thing that's very clear here that we wouldn't get otherwise. Joseph talks about how he meets with various people in the Congress when he goes to meet Martin, Martin Van Buren, and 
John C. Calhoun apparently is not only one of those people who meets and talks with Joseph, Calhoun remembers talking to Joseph about it. So think of all the people that Calhoun sees and talks to, all the people with petitions and whatever over the course of years. And, you know, three years later, John C. Calhoun is remembering, hey, we, we talked about this in person. So uh, Cantor compels me to repeat what I said to you at Washington, that according to my views, the case does not come within the jurisdiction of the federal government, which is one of limited and specific powers. So the response of John C. Calhoun is not only would I not intervene to help you were I to become president, I wouldn't support any other president intervening to help you. And this is the vice president to Andrew Jackson. He was, he was Andrew Jackson's first vice president and the leader of the firebrand Southern slaveholding South. And so, you know, Joseph actually has knows Calhoun personally. I mean, they've at least had a personal conversation about this and notwithstanding this, you know, this, this devastation. I mean, and I think this is part of what starts to begin the cynicism for Joseph. Well, you want me to work through the government but it's the people in the government who are saying that they can't help me, right? Oh, I guess you better go talk to Missouri about that. Go talk to Missouri about it. So I need to go ask the judge who's currently living in my house that he stole from me whether or not he thinks it's legal that he stole it from me. Surprisingly, he seems to think that it is. I mean, it, it is, it is a, a stunning thing. Like I said, we are not talking about a type of, 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 of ethnic cleansing that just kind of goes from one, you know, that, that vacillates back and forth. There are not any Missourians that are charged for any of the crimes they commit. I mean, it is not a mob that murders Amanda Barnes Smith's husband and her son, killing her 10-year-old son after he's wounded laying on the ground. It is not a mob that does it. It is the Livingston County State Militia of Missouri that does it. Was there a court-martial for the murdering of a child? How many people were brought up on charges for killing children? A grand total of zero of them. So for Latter-day Saints, the apathy on the part of all governmental structures is becoming more and more and more poignant. On our next podcast, we're going to examine some of the other letters that Joseph receives from these candidates and how that sparks Joseph to make a couple of very fateful determinations, one of which is that American democracy is a failure for the Latter-day Saints. It, it, It won't protect them. Local politicians won't protect them. Governors won't protect them. The Congress won't protect them. Courts won't protect them. And apparently the presidency can't or won't even protect them. And so if you can't get justice inside of America, what are you going to do? Well, for Joseph, he begins making plans to send expeditions out to the West, to Mexico and to British territory and to the Republic of Texas, which is an independent country at the time. Because the plan is, well, we're just going to have to leave the United States. 
And also, he will then put up his own candidacy for presidency. And that that will be a, a major part of what we talk about. What is Joseph Smith's presidential platform? We'll talk about that next week. We'll try to have some even more boring political commentary from, you know, political commentary right now is boring, but when you're doing political commentary from the 1840s, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot worse. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's trying to, to, to narrate, you know, the international model building competition. I noticed that he, uh, used some of the graphite there before he attached the second, portion of figure four that's going to come back to on him anyway so we will we'll talk next uh, next week on this as well thank you for listening to the standard of truth podcast hosted by historian dr garrett dirkmott if you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode please share it with them and for more resources visit standardoftruth.com until next time